Welcome to SickCast, brought to you by Sick Research Institute, illuminating every path. Introducing Pega Megoya, Expression of Love, new translations of a selection of guzzles from Painandlal Goya. Today's podcast begins with the recitation of Painandlal's guzzle in Persian, followed by a new English transcreation, the result of a unique collaboration between Dr. Fatima Fayaz and Dr. Nadra Khan of Lahore University of Management Sciences, Damanpreet Singh, writer and graduate student, and Inikor of Sikri. Followed by a discussion between Daman and Inni about the beauty of the guzzle and the transcreation process. Dino Donyao dar kamande an pari rukhsar ma har du alam qimat yek tar muy yar ma ما نمی آریم تا به غمزه مجگان او یک نگاه جانفزایش بس بود در کار ما گاه صوفی گاه زاهد گه قلندر می شود رنگهای مختلف دارد بط ایار ما قدر لعل او به جز آشق نداند هیچ کس قیمت یاقوت داند چشم گوهر بار ما هر نفس گویا به یاد نرگس مخمور او باده های شوق می نوشد دل هوشیار ما My angel-faced beloved holds the reins of the temporal and celestial worlds. These two worlds are worth just a single strand of my beloved's hair. We cannot bear the allure of that gaze. One rejuvenating glance would be enough for our lifetime. Sometimes a Sufi, sometimes a Zahid, at others a calendar. Our unfathomable beloved has many tints and shades. Who, except the lover, would know the worth of beloved's red gems? But our eyes that shed pearls are aware of the value of rubies. In the memory of beloved's intoxicating eyes, Goya, with every breath, our wakeful hearts sip on the nectar of longing. Guru Fateh, this is any core in conversation with Daman Preet Singh and about Ghazal number two from Painandlal Goya's collection, Divane Goya. Welcome, Daman. It's so nice to have you here with me again. Yeah, it's nice to be back. Great. You know, before I forget to tell you, Daman, we've been getting some really interesting comments about the Ghazal. Um, the, quite a few people have said they are joining, going to be joining us on this journey, and they're looking forward to the next podcast. But there were two comments which were particularly interesting, which I wanted to share with you, that people were really appreciating the context that we were, you know, putting around these Ghazals. And the nuancing of the translation and our and why we chose certain words so they're appreciating that and i know in this one particularly this ghazal has you know has taken us through quite the journey where the two of us and actually the four of us were on different wavelengths mm-hmm. and i think on this particular ghazal let's talk about the translations that we have put out there mm-hmm. but the ones which speak to us a lot closer. So it will give the audience uh, a taste that it's there's never one right way to translate. Yeah. Because we come from different spaces, mm-hmm. right? And our understandings are, are different. So um, I'm going to um, share with you the first couplet okay. and, um, and then let's talk about that one. The first couplet is, 
My angel-faced beloved holds the reins of the temporal and celestial worlds. Both these worlds are not even worth a single strand of my beloved's hair. So, you know, Daman, when I read that for the first time, particularly the, the temporal and celestial worlds, the first thought that came to my mind was Miri Piri. Mm-hmm. You know, that that this beloved holds everything in his or her hand. Mm-hmm. But then the second line what said, both these worlds are not even worth one strand. So then what is worth more than these two worlds? That is something, there is something more than these two worlds. And that's where I began to think about the only thing that is more in my mind is love, mm-hmm. which transcends this. Mm-hmm. So uh, talk to me about your understanding. What what did you, when you read this and you we worked on it, what did you think? Yeah, I think your interpretation is one I would agree with. And I would just add that there is, in this couplet, there seems to be echoes for me of the couplet, one of the couplets in the first puzzle, where he's kind of describing his coming into existence. And he's saying, you know, there was no sign from sky nor earth, but love mm-hmm. that brought me into existence. I, I don't know exactly how we ended up translating it, but that's the general translation. And there's, again, this sense of the vastness of one's love for one's beloved transcends all understanding and all, you know, even how we can fathom the most vast way to fathom the universe, which is both the temporal and the celestial, even that does not capture for him what this relationship to his beloved captures. And it's not even that, you know, the his love for his beloved is equivalent or beyond. It's a single strand of the beloved's hair is not even worth the temporal and the celestial. So there is a great sense of vastness that comes in this couplet that I think is really powerful and um, I think also sets up this guzzle, which we'll continue to, which is, we'll talk about, but this is a bit different from guzzle one because in this guzzle, he's describing in detail his relationship to his beloved in very intimate terms and this very powerful couplet in the beginning where he's setting up this contrast between the temporal and celestial worlds and the single strand of his beloved's hair really sets us up for going on this journey with him in Guzzle 2. So, Daman, you know, in the first Guzzle, we did not use the word beloved. Mm -hmm. There was no beloved in there. But here in this Guzzle, we have used beloved I know beloved comes in the first line. So can you talk about that, particularly in the context of Persian poetry? Mm-hmm. And what, you know, how does the word beloved appear and what are the connotations and the symbolisms of that word? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's a really good question because so what's interesting here is that Nandlal is developing and appropriating and using a trope of Sufi poetry, which often refers directly to the beloved and is often about the relationship between the lover and the beloved. So we can see here that Nandalal, again, as we discussed last last month, is deeply aware and also has mastered the guzzle form. He's clearly aware of the tropes that are used in guzzle poetry of the beloved and the lover. And he is, of course, in his context, which is his position in Guru Gobind Singh's court, is not referring to what a Sufi poet might be referring to when they Mm -hmm. talk about the beloved, but is actually both describing, in my interpretation, his relationship with the Guru, Guru Gobind Singh, and also his relationship to Ikongar or the divine, right? And I think each ghazal can be read in both ways and they're one and the same. Um, So this is his, I'm seeing this as his very clever and powerful and beautiful interpretation of this classical Sufi poetry form, 
which tries to figure out or tries to discuss the relationship between the lover and the beloved in his context of Guru Gobind Singh's court. Um, now to refer specifically to how we, the process of translating this couplet, if we look at the original Persian, the word will use the word beloved throughout this ghazal, but really in the original Persian, it only shows up once. And the word that's used in Persian is also a word we have in um, Gurbani and also a word you know, we have in everyday Punjabi, which is yar which can popularly mean kind of friend, but also means one's beloved in Persian. Um, and the word yad is used in the second line. And we've also moved it up and introduced it in the first line for the ease and convenience of the English reader who isn't aware of this trope of the beloved and the lover in Persian poetry. If we were to translate the first line word for word, we would say something like, my angel-faced one holds the reins of the temporal and celestial wor worlds. And for the ease of interpretation and understanding, we've translated one as beloved to really make it clear to the English reader that this is a key word in the scuzzle that will continue to reappear, even though in the Persian, it's really implied more often than it's actually stated directly. Right. I mean, there was another word here, you know, I mean, while we translated this as angel, it actually means a fairy, right? Can you mm -hmm. speak a little bit to that? So the word is buddy, which we also have in Punjabi um, and other subcontinental languages. Um, and the word um, angel-faced or buddy um, is referring to kind of Persian mythology and has a particular history. Um, and again, for, for the purposes of an English reader who might not know all of the context, we've used the word angel, which might have, which is I think more readily understandable to the present day reader. So that was another, I mean, that was also a word that, as you remember, was like hotly debated among the four of us in terms of how we should go about that. But ultimately, we settled on angel because I think that is a word that an English reader is more familiar with and can understand the image of an angel-faced beloved more easily, perhaps. You know, I struggled with the second line of this couplet. Both these worlds are not even worth a strand of my beloved's hair. Or um, there was a very great push for these two worlds are worth just a single strand of my beloved's hair. You know, there is, so in, I mean, and here it is, you could read it actually in both ways if you wanted to, mm -hmm. uh, that these two worlds are worth just a single strand, mm -hmm. or these two worlds are not even worth a single strand. Mm -hmm. So the depth of it is, is how one looks at this relationship and how one wants one puts it out there yeah yeah and again yeah it does that was another <laughs> that was another debate that you know occupied a lot of our time among the four of us and yeah like you're saying really points to both the nuances in the original Persian but also I think at some level the debate over whether we should say these worlds are not even worth a single strand or are just worth a single strand is also, I think, partially just like who we are as people, right? And what speaks to us more. And that can even change for me in a given day, right? Like in October, I might have advocated for another line. And then, you know, this week I might have advocated for another line, depending on kind of where I am. So I think that's something that's really important to keep in mind when doing any sort of translation work is that it really is a process of interpretation that is just going to be different for every individual, depending on what, especially when we're talking about something so intimate as one's relationship to the divine and we're translating a poem that is so intimate and represents someone's very powerful experience with the beloved and someone as important to the six as Bainandala. So it becomes very complicated. Yep. So let's, uh, I, I totally agree, you know, in my translation process, I mean, I look back to what I translated a year ago, 
And I just say, how could I have done that? That's not what I mean. <laughs> but that's the understanding, the depth, and you learn from it. And I, I, I think it's, you know, in a way, it's good to acknowledge it too. Mm-hmm. So uh, for the reader and for the listener and for the reader also to know that this is a process. There's nothing set in gold, you know, set in stone here. And it's a journey. So let's go on to the um, next couplet. We cannot bear the allure of that gaze. One rejuvenating glance would be enough for our lifetime. So here, you know, we used a different word for gaze because the it was really, I mean, in the original, it was a fluttering of the eyelashes and, and how do we bring that? The symbolisms was there. But I love the intensity that, it was that we cannot bear that gaze. When I encountered this, it was it took me back to the dialogue with Pai Mardana, what he was having with an individual, and uh, the individual asked him, "How do you see? Where is the guru?" And he points. He said, "There's the guru," and he's talking about Guru Nanak Sahib. And the individual looks and is blinded. He said, I cannot, all I see is, is light, you know, radiant. I cannot see. And Painandla, and, and Paimardana says, that is not the way to see the guru. You have to look below, at, you know, you have to put your eyes down and begin from looking where the earth is, where the feet are, and then work your way up. Because then you the you will be able to absorb the radiance, mm-hmm. and it was such it was such a powerful thing for me at that time that the eyes also need to be able to absorb that radiance and see that. And how do you see the beloved? It's only when your eyes are lowered you rarely can you look into that eye, mm-hmm. and because it's it's so powerful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, um, you know, talk to me about that because there's another line um, before we go on to the next line because there's a phrase there in the second line that I really want to get into. Okay. Um, yeah, I think, wow, yeah, I think that I that is a really helpful way to think about this couplet, um, that story about by Mardana. And I think, there's two things that I think are kind of important here is that there is first, like you were saying, there is a great sense of warmth and radiance and maybe even stronger than warmth. And there's a heat that comes from the beloved's gaze that is at some level, just absolutely unbearable, but is also something that one is longing to understand or longing to meet that gaze even as it's unbearable. And I think that kind of tension of something being unbearable, but also kind of irresistible is really interesting. Um, And I think there also comes through in this couplet, a sense of remembrance and, or maybe longing, right? Because there's a sense that the gaze of the beloved is too radiant and too much to bear right now. But one small glance, you know, one encounter with the beloved for this lifetime would be enough, suggesting that, you know, I'm aware that whatever my life is right now is not all it is. You know, all I need right now is a glance or a glimmer. And I might, you know, I might just stay at gazing at the feet of the Guru in this lifetime. And that is actually fine Mm. Um, which i think is really interesting given that we know that even one strand of the beloved's hair is not worth the temporal and celestial worlds right so there's an interesting way in which he's trying to figure out his life in a and what its limitations mean and kind of how there is this sense of longing and the sense of knowledge that there will be some sort of reunion and it's not pos- it's not possible because it's unbearable but also not necessary to try to 
understand the full allure of the gaze in this lifetime. Mm. Daman ex- <clears throat> explained to me these. The word we we chose was rejuvenating, mm-hmm. rejuvenating glance. I mean, I would probably ha- would like to have called to have written one life enriching glance. Uh, because this word in Persian, can you speak to that? Yeah, yeah, that was this was another debate, right? <laughs> um, the original Persian Persian is John Fizayish, which literally would mean, you know, something that increases one's life or increasing of what, something that is increasing of one one's life. Um, and the original word that we chose here was, resuscitating, which was, I think we all decided was the wrong word because it really means you're coming back from death. And here the implication really is, has nothing to do with coming back from death, but actually, yeah, one's life is augmented by this glance in this lifetime. Um, So we went with rejuvenating, which I think is maybe a word all four of us are differently unsatisfied with, right? To be completely frank, you know, it was really difficult to figure out this word. And I think maybe, like we were saying, you know, maybe in four months, if the four of us talked again, we would want another word <laughs> and that's fine. Um, but I think, you know, it, uh, it, ca- it captures a little bit of what that might mean because there is a sense of refreshment or a sense of kind of feeling enlivened by this glance that I think comes through with the word rejuvenating that might be close to the original in Persian. Mm. I know because um, in in Barney it is really that it's only when you feel the grace that you live. Mm. Otherwise you exist. Mm. So I'm wondering whether this is that same, you know, you're existing, but with that one glance, then you actually live. Yeah. That was my... uh, that was my thought when I was coming to it. You know, I mean, then the the Persian poetry, the Sufi poetry. I mean, they use ex- the expressions and the metaphors and the symbolism. I mean, this is not something for the common man, right? It it really ha- you have to have some, you have to be learned. While it is sung, I mean, in in South Asia, I know everyone is. I mean, most people recite these things. But do they understand them, the, the symbolisms and the metaphors that they are, particularly, um, you know, and, and also understand them according to your mindset. I mean, particularly the one with the fluttering of the eyes. I mean, that's very visual. And yet we've changed it to gaze. And I think we've lost something there. Yeah. That we couldn't, I, do, I couldn't have put, we couldn't have put, the radiance of the of that fluttering eyelashes. Yeah. Yeah, that was a difficult line to translate. Because if we went word for word, yeah, like you're saying, it would be something other than gaze. It would be, yeah, the right, like you're saying, the fluttering of the eyelashes. And yeah, I think it's interesting because I think I often think about how um in kind of most, in many English-speaking cultures, and maybe I'll talk about the American context because that's the one I know the most, there isn't a culture of kind of oral recitation of poetry like there is in a lot of other cultures, including, you know, in Punjab, there is a culture of um, of poetry that I think is, you know, a popular culture of poetry that really, you know, there is a sense of like, a shared vocabulary of poetry in some ways. And maybe, you know, we can talk about how that's being lost and so on. And um, I I often wonder when we make these sorts, when we try to make these sorts of calls in terms of what an English reader, an English speaking reader who does might not have any of that context, which is really, I think, important to emphasize is when we're translating these, we're trying to translate it for someone who has no idea who Bainandlal is to come to this guzzle and still get something from it. Mm. No idea what even, you know, Sikhi is and come to this guzzle and get something from it. So for that reason, sometimes a lot of things feel like they're getting lost because we have to kind of 
be very careful to not make things too difficult to follow or obscure. I would say obscure, right? Because, yeah. Um, Yeah, so I think that was a really interesting conversation. And this really line does capture that tension for me. Um, So he's engaging a form that remains, you know, the guzzle remains very popular in Iran and also in South Asia. But we're not. So there, I guess there's two things. We're not writing for, we're not translating for a primarily South Asian audience who would already have this context. And also we're translating very complex imagery that would have been readily understandable in Bainandlal's context in the court of Guru Gobind Singh, um, where there was this very, you know, vibrant poetic culture. Um, and we want to retain, retain that and demonstrate that at some level, but also provide the reader with something that I, I don't want to say easy to understand because that's that's condescending and that's not what I mean, but is not obs- unnecessarily obscure and difficult to dif- difficult to find a way into. And we want to make it so that the guzzle is easy to find a way into and hopefully prompts like more exploration. And like, hopefully, I think the idea is that people will want to ask questions, you know, how are these choices made? What does this word mean in the original and so on? And that opens up a lot of powerful things in terms of interpretation and in terms of engagement with Bainanthal's words. And hence the podcast. I know you were hesitant and I was like, no, definitely we need a podcast because there's so much there we cannot explain. And, you know, to have these conversations and to have the listeners and the readers in and the, and the process, I feel they, you, uh, you know, they become part of your journey and they walk with us on this. So let's go to the next one. And I love that. And Zaman, I'm going to really ask you about, about these. So sometimes a Sufi, sometimes a Zaid, at others a Kalandar, our unfathomable beloved has many tints and shades I mean, I understanding of the word Sufi, Zahid, and Kalandar, but this is really about a relationship. This is about the relationship, or maybe the, you know, I, I talk about that in love, there are many dimensions of love. There is reverence, there's the devotion, there is the caring, the kindness. And here I see that Sometimes in that relationship, I'm a Sufi, and sometimes I'm a Zayed, and sometimes I'm a Kalandar. Because my beloved has so many qualities and so much that, I, that, that I'm absorbed in them, and it's yeah. okay. So yeah. talk to me about that. How are you seeing these? Yeah, this is a really interesting couplet for me, because I think, yeah, there's, I think... So the importance of the word Sufi Zahid and Kalandar makes it really interesting, which notably we've not tra- tried to translate. Um, and if you know one looks at the website, you will see a footnote and you can click on the footnote for an explanation. But yeah, we did not want to even attempt to translate these words. Um, so my understanding is that, you know, a Sufi, a Zahid, a Kalandar are kind of three different modes, like you were saying, of trying to figure out one's relationship with the divine, right? So Zahid, notably, is kind of an ascetic, but is kind of following the rules and is perhaps not yet, um, you know, as isn't quite the wandering dervish that the Kalandar is, who is, um, you know, immersed deeply with the divine. The Zahid, there is still some sort of implication of kind of being there's an implication of being, so there's several implications, I think. So one translation that I've come across for Zahid is the zealous ascetic who's really devoted to the rules and really devoted to figuring out what's right and what's wrong. And I would maybe not use the word zealous, but there is a sense of kind of being by the book in this way. Whereas a Galander has very much, you know, is free, is liberated in a certain way and is wandering and immersed with the divine in a different mode. But I think what's interesting here is that, and the reason I'm hesitant to say 
that Zahid means zealous aesthetic is because if we look at the next line, it's, as you were saying, it's our unfathomable beloved has many tints and shades. So by Nandlal to me isn't suggesting that to be a Zahid is to be less than a Galandir and you're one is aiming to ascend in some ways up a hierarchy, but is actually saying, you know, whatever the relationship is with one's divine in a given moment, whether that of a Sufi, that of a Zahid, or that of a Galandir, that is one's relationship with one's beloved, and that is fine, and is actually maybe not maybe even more than fine, but is actually part of what it means to be in this world. I kind of was thinking about kind of how often I think as six we have a sense of you know, one must be in Jardikala, for example. You know, that's something that we hear all the time. That's something that's very important to us as six. And I think sometimes it might even become like, if you're feeling enraged or sad or not in Jardikala, you're maybe doing something wrong or maybe you've lost your connection to the guru. And I think that sometimes is the implication, or at least like in my life, that's felt like, what I've heard in different contexts, whether like directly people speaking to me or just kind of my observations. And sometimes it feels like there's a push to get out of whatever rage you're feeling or whatever sadness you're feeling to get back into Jardikala and accept hukum, right, etc. And I think that this might be a similar sentiment where there is this sense of like, it's okay not to always be in Jardikala. It's okay to not always feel like feeling optimistic. And that doesn't mean you've lost a connection with the guru, but that's actually part of being alive and part of one's relationship with the beloved and the many tints and shades that one's relationship with the beloved takes. So that kind of was my interpretation. And of course, you know, this is another thing where it's like, as a courtly poet of the guru writing, you know, some scholars have argued that by Nandala's guzzles were primarily actually for a Sufi audience who he, that was the audience he had in mind. Um, so there's a thing here that I'm doing that like, you know, might actually be kind of irresponsible where I'm taking what was written for a particular audience, perhaps, right? That's what the scholarship suggests and trying to understand it in like a contemporary Sikh way or context and of what it means for me as a Sikh today. Um, so there could be, I think, another interpretation of this couplet where we could think about what it means for Bainantalal to be talking to Sufis using the language of Sufi Zahid and Kalandar and his, and his relationship or understanding of the beloved. Right. I mean, on the love journey, I mean, there, there are, you know, there are many emotions that come through and many feelings. And, and as, the, as the relationship develops, you experience those and then you articulate them. You cannot articulate something which you have not experienced. So mm -hmm. to me it is, I mean, I know it was only when reverence entered my life that I, in, in my love, that I was said, oh, there is a component of reverence as well. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, before that, I didn't know that. So, uh, you know, it, it was, you know, reading that just, it felt kind of like, okay for me I said oh I know I think I know what he's saying but not quite knowing but you know because you always interpreted it for yourself you yeah. know it's just human nature so for the next one we go on to who except the lover would know the worth of beloved's red gems but our eyes that shed pearls are aware of the value of rubies mm -hmm. so here now you know we have this this one was a killer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because there were metaphors and, you know, and we there was the lal and how do we translate red? Because knowing fully well that in Gurbani, red is the color of love, lal rang. You know, and we know when this lal rang charda hai, you know, that means you're immersed in this love. And then comes this lips and so all these... And then you had the pearls and you had the rubies and you had the gems. And it was just, you know, it was like kind of like a, you, I was entering a magical world. Mm -hmm. And I thought about it and I said, you know, this pain of the pearl, our eyes that shed pearls, when our eyes shed pearl-like tears, it's when we are really in pain, mm -hmm. when 
longing is so intense. And we can still see that beauty in that, in those tears, because those tears are like pearls. And yes, they are, you know, so for me, that became that connection. And I'm sure there is, you know, I mean, gems are symbolic in spiritual language. I know, you know, Bhagat Kabir talks about them and he reminds us that the ruby, you know, in one of his Shabbats, he says the ruby is described as a warm luster of the heart. He describes the ruby as, you know, he uses ruby in that essence, that, that, depth, that redness of the heart is there. So talk to me about when you, I know, I mean, I know some of the things what you have said about this, but I'd love to re- listener to have your, you know, what you feel about it and where you are coming from in this one. Yeah. I think this one is, yeah, similar to the one, the couplet with the gaze. I think there was quite a lot of debate here. And because there's the depth of the imagery, as you're saying, is such that it's hard to figure out exactly how we should translate it. So something that I think, I guess there's three things that are notable, kind of three words that are notable to think about in this couplet. So the first is the beloved red gems that we have in the first line. Mm -hmm. The original word here is lal, which in the Persian would mean gems in general, but also often means specifically the ruby and often is used as a metaphor for the beloved's lips. Mm-hmm. So we talk, thought about, should we say the beloved's lips should be directly just make it less of a metaphor and just directly say that? Or should we say the beloved's red rubies? Or should we say the beloved's red gems? Um, and as as the reader can see, we ultimately settled on Beloved's red gems, both to convey the possibility of Nandalal referring directly to a ruby, but also hopefully, I mean, hopefully people will listen to this and know that there's also an implication of the Beloved's lips, because I think in English that wouldn't be something right. where my mind would go. And that this was a context that one of our team members, Fatima, was explaining to us in terms of the word lal in Persian would have all of these different implications. Um, so this is another one where, you know, maybe in two months we would want to change it or whatever, right? Um, but I think the other, and so then there's the other thing is that in the second line, we actually do have the word rubies for yakut, which would be translated quite directly as ruby in Persian. So for that reason also, since he's using two words, two different words in the same couplet to refer to the red lips, or in one perhaps to refer to the red lips and the other perhaps not to, right? This is all up for interpretation. We've used the word red gems and the the word rubies to kind of give a sense of that there is, there are different words being used in the same couplet to refer to something perhaps similar. Um, So that's something that I would know, I think is notable in this couplet. And I think it's also interesting, like you're saying that there is, again, this this deep pain and longing that he's referring to with the pearl-like tears. And it seems that even those pearl-like tears or the eyes that shed the pearl-like tears are still, you know, he's trying to figure out kind of what that longing means for his relationship to the beloved. And I think he's suggesting that even those eyes that are shedding pearl-like tears and are so, are longing so much for the beloved, have have an understanding of the beloved, have an understanding of the value of the beloved, and that longing itself is something beautiful for him. Um, the last thing I think that I would say here, though, is that, and this I think will is true of all of his guzzles, and I think is something that his guzzles really teach us, is that there is a great sense of the aesthetic. Mm, yes. And a great sense of imagery. And here we have the jewels. And, you know, in other guzzles, we'll have the seasons, right? Spring will come and colors. And I think that is something that, 
And of course, you know, that also comes in Gurbani, the sense of the aesthetic and beauty and the importance of beauty. Um, but I think that is also notable, is that there is a very consistent sense of the importance of the aesthetic for Bainanthal. And, you know, of course, it always is important to remember that he was a courtly poet surrounded by beautiful things. Um, so what can we learn from that kind of, yeah, the importance of beauty? Yes, but who, uh, you know, it's only a lover would know the worth of a beloved's lips and long for them, mm -hmm. right? And do anything and shed the pearl-like tears in that longing and that waiting. And now we come to the last couplet. In the memory of beloved's intoxicating eyes, Goya, with every breath, our wakeful hearts sip on the nectar of longing. And here, you know, for the intoxicating eyes, I mean, the original is Nargis, and Nargis is a flower, but yet the symbolism is really for the beautiful eyes, and it's these intoxicating, dreamy eyes of the beloved that Goya, with every breath, is waiting so that his heart can sip the nectar of longing. You know, I would have liked to have, instead of that nectar, put the wine of longing. Mm -hmm. You know, this connotation of wine, wine has a different connotation. And yet in Sufi poetry, it, there is jam. Mm -hmm. You know, you're always going to the Meccana, mm -hmm. to the tavern and, and drinking. So this was kind of like, for the four of, I think, I don't know whether we could have put wine there, but this is what would have... I think I would have liked to have put that wine there. Yeah. Yeah. This was another controversial one because like you're saying, there is narcissists that we ultimately, instead of using the imagery of the flower, we just translated it as eyes mm -hmm. um, and then nectar instead of wine. And then the other controversial word, which I think maybe, yeah, maybe to a reader is confusing as to why it's controversial, but sip versus drink was also of great controversy for the four of us because, you know, we were kind of debating whether he's saying that his wakeful heart is kind of slowly, gently sipping this wine or nectar of longing, or is he saying that his wakeful heart is taking a big swig of the nectar of longing? And what those are two very different things, mm. you know, that's the difference between impatience and patience. And both interpretations, I think, work because in the first line, there is a sense of every breath. You know, he's kind of, perhaps he's kind of talking to himself here where he's saying every breath is in this memory of the beloved's eyes. And one could easily interpret that to mean that he's very kind of slowly, calmly sipping this nectar of longing. But we also have seen him be very kind of tumultuous in other contexts, right? Mm -hmm. and we've seen kind of the impatience and the longing and the pearl-like tears. So one could also interpret this. Given that the Persian word is the general word for drinks, it was unclear to us what exactly the translation would be in English for sip or drink. But here, Go, you know, Goya is, is, while he's referring to himself, he's also speaking to all lovers because he uses the word our wakeful heart, right? Yeah. So, you know, it, 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 I think that's the form of the Persian poetry, the way it comes out, the gazelle form, where you become larger and then you take on the persona of all the lovers and you speak like that. Yeah, and this I think is also maybe actually something that gets lost in the English because in Persian and also in Punjabi and other kind of subcontinental, but even other languages, maybe English is the exception here, I would have to check. But, you know, one could refer to yourself using the second person plural, and that's pretty common and it has a certain implication, right? And we've talked about this also in terms of like, yeah, what what kind of feeling comes through when you refer to yourself as asi or whatever in Punjabi, but ma in the Persian. Mm -hmm. um, so it really is something that gets lost in English because our wakeful heart doesn't have the same dual implications where he's referring to perhaps to all lovers, but also could be just referring to himself in the second person. 
And I guess in English, the only equivalent we have is like the royal we, which is not at all what I, the implication is in Persian or Punjabi. So that's a very interesting thing that I think like gets gets kind of lost in translation in that way. And both interpretations, I think, are valid. Um, and probably, like in all of these cases, it is meant to be both interpretations. And in the Persian, those both would be very clear to the listener. But in the English, it becomes necessary to explain it. You know, it's really interesting, Daman. You know, we are interpreting, we've made a conscious decision. When, mm-hmm. when we began the project, I don't think we were that clear. But then as we had Fatima and Nadra with us, we made that decision that we were going to interpret this, these guzzles in the genre it was being presented using that framework instead of trying to fit it into the Gurbani framework. Because, you know, we felt that, I mean, Goya is deliberately using this framework of the guzzle and in a language, which is an elite language. And so he's writing for people who are knowledgeable and learned. So his audience is of a certain type. And it's, you know, when you write, Actually, when I write, I write for myself. But it's basically the people who are lovers understand it, get it. So it is really you're writing for the lovers. I'm looking at it as Painanlal is writing for a certain particular group in mind and not for the masses because the masses are not going to understand this, you know, this symbolism and this. Um, these metaphors because they have to have a lot of education and keep in mind this was what 17th century Mm -hmm. so you know his his choice to can deliver his love to convey his love for the guru in the language which he chose is not an accident i mean he's using very symbolic and strong symbolisms of that time to speak to the people who are not maybe of that mindset, of that faith, to say, this is what I'm feeling about this. Mm-hmm. And I have the skill set to present it mm-hmm. in that. Mm-hmm. And I feel that I hope we are honoring that. Yeah, I think this is kind of an interesting dilemma because a lot of the scholars have argued that Bainandalal, and I think I said this earlier, Bainandalal was primarily, it seems that he was primarily writing to a Sufi audience or a Persian-speaking audience for all of the reasons you pointed to insofar as this was uh, the language of governance, this was the language of the elites. Um, And then I think it becomes interesting when we're trying to translate, where we as Sikhs today are saying are trying to understand that historical context, which is important to our history, but then also trying to understand what he meant, you know, what these words mean and how can they help us perhaps understand our own relationship to the guru. So I think it becomes an interesting thing where there is a particular historical context, a particular audience, all of that is really significant to understanding the text itself. But then the text itself can also be really powerful for all of us, right? And I would say not even just for six. I mean, they're just beautiful poems. Oh, they are. Yeah. So I think that it's an interesting thing. And I think, um, yeah, I think I'm always interested in thinking through, okay, you know, like we've, we've done in today's conversation, that there is a particular way this would have been received by his audience in the moment of its writing and of course that would you know be a whole other conversation but then there's also what we're trying to do which is bring his words to you know six in the 21st century which is just a very different context um so and i think yeah so i think there's there's that kind of dual way to approach the guzzles that I always try to keep in mind because I think it's often like for me personally I often will read a couplet and say well that really resonates with me or that's really beautiful and powerful and I want to understand what that means which is really important but then they're as as important is the historical context 
Well, everything is about context, isn't it? If you don't understand the context, you don't really get to the depth that you come up with, you know, uh, your own thoughts. Well, this isn't right. This is feminist. This is really, you know, uh, derogatory when it isn't that. I mean, in other things, and here it is using that symbolism of the ruby, which is the lips and then the fluttering eyes. And, you know, if you wrote that, I mean, people will say, what was he thinking? But these are the, you know, the symbols and you have to understand the genre and how he's using it. And I think also I would say that myself, when I first encountered the the Ghazals, I was very much struck by some of the very intimate language he's using to describe the beloved. And I think we noted this in the beginning, but in classical Sufi poetry, the beloved would be understood as a female. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if we were to translate word for word we probably would use she or her pronouns to refer to the beloved and as we noted we used the word beloved consistently instead of that um but there is a great intimacy and i think that's part of the beauty but also part of the power of the guzzles is that he's using language that might strike us as a bit a bit overly familiar a bit intimate a bit confusing and then I think once you figure out that, oh, this is the tropes he was trying to engage, and also he is describing a very intimate engagement with the guru that he himself was experiencing, I think it becomes really powerful. Right. It's been lovely, Daman, having you here and chatting about something which we both are enjoying and loving every moment. And I want to thank our reader, our listeners for joining in and uh, we hope to bring you another podcast next month I believe it's Guzzle 8 from the collection right Daman? Yes that's right Um, Anything you would like to say to to our listeners before we sign off? No I am looking forward to continuing talking with you Indy and um, engaging with people's comments as they begin to experience these Guzzles with us Mm. Thank you. Well, thank you from the both of us. Bahiruji ka khalsa, Bahiruji ki fateh. You are listening to Sick Cast by Sick Research Institute, illuminating every path.